0: The ideas, the leaders, the lives
1: that are shaping Denmark and the world.
2: From Blocks Hub in Copenhagen, Denmark, this is Global Denmark. Welcome back. In this week's episode, we bring back our Global Denmark podcast alumni, Dennis Normark. Dennis is a well-known anthropologist, commentator, consultant, and author of several books, including *Pseudo Work* and his most recent, Back to Work. In this episode, we talk about how we can come back to a more meaningful work life after the pandemic, and why it's important for managers to return to a more Danish way of leading organizations.
0: Dennis... When we spoke a couple of years ago, a couple of things have changed since then. But maybe one thing that hasn't changed is this idea of pseudo-work mm. or pseudo-arbeit of Can you, for our audience, give us a little refresher on what pseudo-work is for you and why you think it's important? Well, when me and my co-writer at the time,
1: Arnold Foggensen, defined it, we defined it as work that sort of imitates real work, something that looks like real work, but really is a mirage, really basically leaves no lasting impression on anything, something that doesn't really add any value. If you stop doing the work, the world will basically just go on as it is. So things that has very limited impact, but still can look very important and can look very, um, you know, you could be very busy doing, uh, but and you can get maybe even a decent pay for, but it doesn't really have any effect. And we, with our book, we tried to say that, the there's been an increase in, uh, in the amount of work that imitates work uh, because we still believe you need to fill it in 37 hours each week even when there's nothing to do. So we create stuff that, uh, that has no real impact but just looks very impressive.
0: I guess the obvious question is why do we as human beings do that? <laughs> Well, we don't do that because we're stupid. We do that because we, uh, well, we have
1: a lot of good intentions. Uh, A lot of the pseudo work out there comes from good intentions. There is a good, you know, people are not trying deliberately to do nonsense work. They're trying to help something that doesn't really need any help. Or they do some, they want to write a report informing people about something they don't really want to know. Or, you know, you get statistics and data on something when that, statistics and data wouldn't really solve the problem anyway. Or you, you make some sort of change in an organization because you're desperate and don't know what else to do, so you do something new. And the, the perpetual idea of constant change, of getting new ideas and new initiatives in when, when things were actually going all right to begin with. So the problem with, you know, it's like the road to hell, uh, which is, as we know, paved with good intentions. The same thing goes for pseudo work uh, because we don't really double click on all the stuff we asked to do and say, what's really the point
0: in doing this? Now, by asking the question, what is the point, right? Mm. You are questioning that the emperor doesn't have clothes.
1: Right, Th- there's been some some comparisons to that tale by <laughs> Hans Christian Andersen, <laughs> yeah. But and and Hans Christian Andersen was was onto something when he described this that we can be, sort of be all be trapped into this hall of mirrors where we keep telling each other that that has to make sense or it must make sense. Otherwise, these important people wouldn't keep claim, claiming that that's what we need to do. And sometimes you can shatter that hall of mirrors and ask the naughty question of why? Really, do you have any proof of this? And I, you know. In many years in my work, I experienced that myself. So, you know, sometimes standing there in front of clients as a consultant, it work very well. And then maybe if I took a selfie of myself with my PowerPoint presentation in the background, when I came back to the, the office, people would scold me and say, you used a PowerPoint template that was two years old. And I was like... Who cares? You know, it worked very well. But they came, came up with all sort of self-made ideas of why this was important and how important corporate alignment was, et cetera, et cetera. But they could never give any real proof that that was actually the case. I had some pretty good proof that that it worked well and that the client loved what we were doing and I was overworked and I didn't have more time to, you know, keep updating templates. And sometimes we just basically just have to, to, to um, you know, question and challenge these ideas of importantness of certain tasks that sort of get a life of their own
2: your ideas about pseudo work have have seem to have been relatively well received i think most of us who are in the working world in denmark Mm. at least have heard of the book and, and 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 understand some of the concepts how was the book received in general what what positive and what negative feedback have you gotten from it
1: Well, we got an immense positive feedback. You know, the book was not a a scientific book. It's not a a research project from a university. We basically tried to make a book that would debate how we work today. We're using about (laughs) interviews with around 50 people or so. But what was so so massive about it was the amount of emails and text messages we got from everybody who's saying, you are describing the emptiness of what I'm doing um and and just after our book uh, came out David Graeber the American anthropologist's book on bullshit jobs came out as well which also have uh, documented a lot of these stories so we just basically removed the taboo made it possible for people to to say that there's nothing fundamentally wrong with me although uh, that's what I've been feeling over the years there might be something wrong with my job and my organization or maybe society in general uh, and that was and that that was massive for me to to feel that that people could really understand and they could they could share the perspective and it gave them a voice they didn't have before. So that was the positive part. But of course there was also a lot of people who saw this as an attack on bureaucracy as such and an attack on administration or uh, corporate organizations or the public sector and, and anything like that. And they made it very much to a debate between us and the bureaucrats. And I don't accept that because... You need bureaucrats. There are good bureaucrats out there doing good bureaucratic work. Um, I'm giving a good old follower of Max Weber, you know, the German sociologist who basically invented modern bureaucracy or the idea of it. So it's just that we have come to a, to a point where we just spend too much time on this and, to, and, and it takes too many resources. So, um, of course, you know, when you are threatening some people on their job, which you are and which we were with this book, of course, they're going to fight back.
2: Hmm. Should we talk about the elephant in the room? Let's do it. COVID, <laughs> it's here, it's all around us. What has COVID taught us about pseudo work? COVID-19. COVID-19,
1: a lot actually. And, uh, and uh, that was a bit of a surprise. Uh, not a, well, nobody could imagine this phenomenon, right? So, but what happened just shortly after... Uh, COVID-19, I started getting new text messages and emails from people saying, yes, your thesis has been proven right. I am an expendable person. Nobody needs me. Oh, no. I am go home, and, f- and I don't know when they're going to ask me back because, because I don't do anything of any use. So, so in this way, my, the, the, oh, whole, the whole emptiness of my profession has sort of been disclosed by my, this. My
0: dog won't even look at me anymore.
1: <laughs> it's terribly <laughs> terrible. And of course, they're anxious about this, but also you know a lot of them were open about the fact that they had pseudo work. So that was one thing. And another was, you know, star- stories have started to come out of, of people saying, well, now we actually do more real work than ever before because all the uh, all the consultants, they are home. And usually it would take us, you know, three weeks to do this, but just because the practical people are doing it without the help of administration, we could just do it in two days, right? So people have actually realized that a lot of the, a lot of the administration that's supposed to help them has become a burden on a lot of the things that they do. Um, So these were some of the stories and also another thing which I actually think is the most interesting thing is that basically our thesis in pseudo work was that work does not need to take the time that is available for it. We could do our work shorter than we do. We could actually have a shorter work week and 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 the reason why this doesn't happen is that because our industrial mindset is still you know fixated around the idea that you're going you're punching the clock, going into the factory, doing some work, leaving the factory again, even though we know that the relationship between hours' work and productivity has disappeared long time ago so it's not interesting today how many hours you work it's interesting what you do when you work mm. and and since this um, and we we haven't really been able to cope with this phenomenon because the industrial mindset is still so strong so what happened is when when you suddenly shatter the clock and say that doesn't really matter or you do it whenever you have you find time available for it when work is nothing that necessarily happens from nine to four then we start to actually work according to what we need which value this actually creates and and people stopped working at two o'clock going home because they were already home Um, so in this way this challenged the whole idea and, 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 and a lot of people still report that they really enjoy the flexibility and they want to continue with the flexibility because it is an illusion to think that works work magically takes 37, 40 hours each week. This is Everybody knows this is nonsense. It doesn't work this way. But we've kept living this illusion and in this way, the pandemic basically challenged the idea that hours are more important
2: than the value. Mm, but putting a price on value or giving value of a, a, a value mm-hmm. our society simply doesn't work that way i work also as a consultant yeah uh how do i charge by the hour yeah and it could be that one day i produce something that's worth millions for a company and yeah. i get paid the same price for that mm-hmm. as i do for something that was completely pseudo work yeah <laughs> but they were both an hour yeah and
1: and that's what happens when we when we invoice hours or think by the hours is that we never get a deeper discussion about the value you create. So we keep keep living this you know crazy idea of hours being most important. I would really want us to have a talk and you know deep debate about what is what is the value we create as a consultant. It would certainly have challenged my work if somebody had asked me to pay for the value I created because then we'd have a much more also a more dangerous (laughs) discussion for me as a consultant about the value I actually delivered. Um, So it was easier for us to say, well, to make a new value, uh, set of corporate values for this organization takes um, 40 hours because we had an idea of what they were willing to pay and we knew what our hourly rate was. So basically, from that we realized how much, and that's, sorry but that's a bullshit way of, of talking about value. But you know, I, I, I basically think that we have to, um, we are challenged with an idea of value that was, would be very, very healthy for us.
0: Mm. Now, when your book was released and you said it got uh, a lot of positive uh, reception, mm-hmm. were there any uh, tangible impacts that have been felt in the society since its release in terms of um, actualizing on your thesis?
1: I think that what yeah I know a few companies who basically use it sort of a, a, yeah. a, on a day to day basis and, and introduce all their employees for it and have four day work weeks and and try to um, you know, minimize the number of, of stupid projects and initiatives that they enroll their employees in and but the first book wasn't that concrete uh, it gave sort of a very broad ideas like go home when you're done and stop trying to solve everything you know yeah. it was very because. The first book really was a an attempt to explain, you know, convince people that we had a point here. And it takes you have to to do a bit of an effort to actually get that point through. So we didn't have that much time to really give some, you know, mind blowing new ideas for how you can Mm organize. But a lot of companies, some companies at least, took the book and tried to see if they could find some ways of working differently using some of, some of the elements in it. And but first of all. The most inspiring thing is that it created a debate about it and people got a a concept for talking about something that they all realized was there but they just needed a word for it. And yeah. you never never in, uh, underestimate the power of having a, a good
0: concept. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. When we uh when we first uh talked you had stated that the goal 100 200 years ago mm-hmm. of the aristocracy at least mm. was to work as little as possible. Yeah. Is the goal here, if we go from the five-day week to the four-day week, is the goal still to get down to that kind of 15-hour, two-day work week? And, and a follow-up to that, mm-hmm. do we have any quantitative data on how many hours during the pandemic people are actually working here?
1: To, to take the last one first i don't know i don't i haven't really looked into that uh how much that has actually changed uh if people uh, because it, it depends a lot on the which sector you're part of people have some people have been working more than ever before like for instance you know people in in, in hospitals etc and and others haven't uh, so no i i can't i don't know much about that data and i don't i'm not sure if it's actually available but you know I'm not necessarily married to the idea that we should have a four-day work week or that we should work less than we do. I was, we were very open in the book in the sense that if you love working 70 hours a week, who am I to tell you that you shouldn't, right? Then As long as it's, it's, it's healthy work and, and you like it and you think it's meaningful, by all means, work. Um, we were just saying well, there are just too many unhappy people out there who are not engaged in their work we know this we know a ton of people are stressed out by their work their work we know that too so i think there is sort of a, a disease in, in in the modern work that we need to to look at and i think being much more critical about the stuff that we do and taking it into a deeper consideration could relieve of of some of the ills from working very hard and working many hours so again I'm not necessarily a disciple of of working less hours, but I think for many people it would be a pretty good idea.
2: We have this problem, though, and it's human nature, right? And that is that we work so hard for productivity gains. Yeah. We become more efficient at what we do. Mm. And then what do we do? We just fill up the hole with more stuff to do. Yeah. That's the interesting
1: thing that, you know, we forget. We we will never get short of of adding more work. We'll always find work to do. You know, historically, we've seen again and again, we see it today too, that people are worrying that the machines are going to take our jobs. People have been worrying about that for about at least documented 250 years. And it has never been the case. You know, people have always invented more work. what we we were saying is that yeah, but maybe the quality of the work we're inventing today has lowered. Maybe what we're actually giving people work is not decent work anymore. So of course people can find work. The most easy thing in the world is to find something to do. But... It's not necessarily good work. it's not necessarily value creating because we have created these you know echo chambers and and halls of mirrors where we tell each other that this and this is this is needed without actually checking if it is.
0: It's really interesting too. you mentioned it as kind of this disease. We're willing to do this meaningless work um, that's driving one to stress and sickness. yeah um, just to stay busy and put up the illusion that one is creating value, although it's pseudo value. Yeah. And I, I remember we talked um, on our first talk about the notion that this could be rooted philosophically in this kind of Protestant guilt om- almost, mm. that it's, it's you're atoning for your sin by working. Mm. And I wonder if that, if that, um, that guilt can be um, expiated here with the pandemic washing it all away and saying, it's okay, it's okay not to do meaningless work now.
1: I I'm sure that people have have taken their job and what they do into consideration much more, and and th- and and I know at least there was a McKinsey study I read that you might be half about half of of, of all working Americans uh, really st- have started considering: Do I want to do what I'm doing? The, am I really content with this job? Does it feel like the right thing to do? And and should I see my family more? Should I basically be around the people I love more than doing this? So. This has absolutely you know, increased the number of people who are, who are looking t- for value in life from other types of things than what they do, from their career or whatever. And I think that's a, that's a healthy response in a way. And that d- basically um, that challenges the Lutheran idea. But, but also in our, wo- on our work, we've tried to challenge the concept of work in general and say, but what is work really? Is work only what you get paid to do? Hmm. because we 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 spoke to a lot of people who who said i who basically had a horrible job they did nothing there but that they paid their you know they got salary from it but when they were done they did some voluntary work which was three times as meaningful, but the dilemma is, that the crazy is nobody will pay me for this. But that's where I really add value. So my, my perception of this is that our idea of work has broken. We should not think of work as something you're paid for, but again, something that makes a change, something that actually improves stuff so, uh, around you. And the whole idea of work being something that has to do with a paycheck is a, is, sorry, is a stupid idea. And, and I think if... The human being wants to work. They want to do something. But they should expand their idea of work. It's, is it work when I, when I cook a dinner for my kids? I would say it is, you know. Um, so, again, idleness in this sense is, is still maybe, I don't know if it's a sin, but I think we should think of it as a lot of the work that we do as just as valuable and, and moral as the work we do for an organization.
2: I've had this uh, experience after reading your book and listening to your podcast that I almost feel a sense of shame every time I do pseudo work Mm. and I catch myself doing it, right? However, this isn't just the individual's prerogative, right? And this is, I think, something that I think we can quickly get a sense of that, hey, you as a person need to find your purpose. You need to find something that Mm. makes sense for you, but we don't really all have control over that, do we? Um, no, no, no. I course. mean, I need to yeah. make money. I have a house payment. Yeah, I have yeah. kids who need yeah. fed. I have, <laughs> and so there are some things I have to do. Yeah. Yeah. To make money. Yeah. Sure.
1: And, and, you know, basically maybe that that was the one thing we ignored, maybe willfully ignored the most in the first book. Um, because again, time and again, at least people have come up to me and say, you know why people do pseudo work? And they gave up, you know, they gave the exact explanation you're giving right now. You know, we have to earn some money and we have to make a living and actually that's also why in my news but we'll we'll get back to I, I, I included a, a chapter on economic independence mm. because for me that actually is a bit of a key uh, to getting rid of pseudo work is basically being able to have what the Americans call fuck you money right? Mm. to say I don't Sorry, <laughs> but you know, it's a good phrase. It really is a good yeah, phrase really is, yeah. uh, to say. Well, I, I don't need it. I can I can do without it. But mm. for most people, it's not really a choice uh, because they are, are part of this. But and maybe we gave we gave the individual too much. We fought too much that the individual can change stuff, and um, and and maybe there is a limit to this. But the, you know, your personal dependency on your work and your h- how much you pay for your house, et cetera, et cetera. How how much you want to be dependent on your job that is an individual thing.
2: Hmm. It is, but it's somewhat akin to sort of structural racism and other things like hmm. that where it's not only the individual's prerogative the, no, no, it that determines their fate, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So it's 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 a part of the culture. It's part of how we organize organizations. It's a matter of leadership. It's a matter of a lot of things.
0: Well, I think that's a, uh, a great place to uh, take a quick break and uh, we'll hop back in and we're going to take a look at Dennis's new book, Back to Work, or Tibet Tabad to, beit, to Abad, And, uh, Take a look at what that has to say. All right, we're back here with uh, Dennis Nurmark. And we have just had time to uh, make some fuck you money and we're ready to dive (laughs) back in, guys. Dennis, August 2021 at the time of this recording, it's time to get back to work. Although the pandemic hasn't said farewell yet, and I don't know if it ever will. Tell us about your new book, the Back to Work.
1: Well, Back to Work was a, an attempt to, to make, maybe make up for uh, the not-so-concrete advice from the first book, as we talked about, because a lot of people have asked me, so, yes, we think you're right, uh, you were right, The that uh, there the, is the, the pseudo-work out there, so what do we do about it? Um, could you give us some more, you know, hands-on advice? Um, and also... Because the book had had such a, a g- big impact, um, there were some stories out there that I wanted to collect, and the more the more stories that came to me, were also giving me a deeper and deeper insight into you know the things that was causing pseudo work creating pseudo work. So I had a much more detailed idea of, of what what was happening out there, and maybe had more information about what happens on an organizational level. So I thought, you know, these three years have given me more and more information. And also, again, COVID-19 gave us some pretty good ideas of things could be actually different. Uh, And that inspired me to make a a book that was much more, you know, tried to be much more hands-on, tried to analyze it a little bit. And also, since we did our book, there's been real research on pseudo work. Uh, there's been, you know, done some surveys on how many, how many people do pseudo work. And in Denmark, it's about 55 to 76 percent of Danes who have exp- real experience with doing meaningless work. And 13 percent do it on an almost day basis. So, so now we know more. For me, it was a way to take all that new research and all the things and, and put it into a, a new structure and basically give some people some more advice. So that was the idea of that book.
0: So what is some of the advice? We're going back to work, right? That's yeah. that's the title. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what, uh, for those that have uh, engaged or actively engaged in pseudo-work um, in light of our world situation now, mm. how can they best go back to work?
1: Well, f- first of all... It's m- very much about having starting some type of conversation uh, with your with with everybody in the organization about the you know what pseudo work is and talking about it with maybe managers etc and spreading the word in that sense but it's also about um for instance if a good way to start on the other side of corona is to basically look at all the stuff you didn't do uh, because I mean in many organizations people have been Putting a lot of new projects and ideas and meetings in the freezer. So you know what what happened? Did you actually take them out of the freezer when everything was done? So use that maybe as your as your stepping stone to having some more reflections on what you're actually doing. Um, so you could use COVID in this in this in this. And what which sort of the Tuesday meeting? Nobody did the Tuesday meeting because there's no content to actually discuss at the Tuesday meeting, right? So so that might be one very hands on way of looking into it. Because everybody, almost everybody experienced a change uh, the Voluntas, uh, the consultancy company I work for now, uh, partly, uh, did also a, a, actually a survey in 46 countries. And, and the number two things mentioned by people that they wanted to keep after things getting normal again was cut down on unnecessary tasks. You know, that was mentioned by 52%. So clearly, you know, the pandemic has, has made us reflect a lot more on the stuff that we do. So that that would be one
0: way of, of What was that up. law you told me about where people just, like, was it Murphy's Law? Not Murphy's Law, but there's a law where you... Parkinson's Law. Parkinson's Law, law where you fill up the time. If If we have a one-hour meeting, even if it takes half an hour, we're going to sit there for an hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So that was one thing I, I, you know, I actually tried out in the first book was saying, could you maybe limit these?
0: (laughs) It doesn't work on Skype, Parkinson's Law.
1: No, but it it kind of does because being in a virtual meeting is so horrible for most people, (laughs) so they (laughs) basically (laughs) spend less time on it. You know, I'm sitting at the uh, Board of uh, Directors of uh, Broadcasting Corporation, Damus Radio. And, and we usually spend about you know, six, seven hours in, in, in having a board meeting. We spend three hours when it's virtual, right? So in that way, you could actually, you know, should we do more of that? I think we should do more of that. Um, that would be one way of doing it, uh, of, of challenging the, the things that tends to take more and more hours. And also in my book, I try to, 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 well, what about, you know, creating meetings where you're basically allowed to leave when there's nothing more for you? I don't know, instead of being politely sitting there for for everything to be done. Maybe we are a bit too polite, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, And and some of the people who are very good at challenging pseudo work are the type of people that organizations sometimes find a little bit, you know, difficult, uh, who, who also themselves say, well, I maybe have, you know, a problem with maybe i say inappropriate stuff etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. So in some of our organizations we are simply just too um, complacent in a way and, and 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 we don't let people who are challenging stuff and asking the why questions. We don't give them a lot of, a lot of space. So that's that's another thing i look at in the new book. How can we basically
0: well, Socrates, got, Socrates got poisoned for it, so it's, it's, yeah, a, it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a tricky bit. <laughs> it's
1: always been dangerous, right? Uh, again, if it's the powers that be might not really enjoy this. Uh, but again, if you want things to evolve and develop, then you have to have critical
2: people. In, in talking about going back to work, and you mentioned the example of you have six-hour board meetings, which you could do in three hours, right? Mm. But how do you handle the fact that a lot of the work that takes place, a lot of what also creates value, it's just being together. Yeah. Is, you know, I heard one time MIT did a, did a research project where they put some trackers on workers and they saw how they went through the office. Mm. Then they crossed that with who's the most productive worker. Mm. And what they found out was, you know, the guy who hangs out up at the reception and talks to the receptionists and is at the coffee machine and knows his coworkers is just as effective mm. as the engineer who's sitting down there apparently working all the time, right? Yeah. Those six hours might be necessary. Yeah right yeah i mean i miss personally when i sit at, at, at teams meetings now i miss the fact that i can have some interaction with my colleagues that we can small talk mm-hmm. you don't do that on teams no no, no. exactly
1: and and that's that's what i said before that's why i'm not a disciple of necessarily saying we work four four days a week because we we need some slack <laughs> we mm-hmm. need some some spaces for us to do this to develop stuff and uh, and we need to spend more time maybe uh, with our colleagues at the reception or the coffee machine. What we don't need is spend more time with them in open office because that does not help a lot. Open offices are pretty bad. Um, And and, and the only reason why we've had these offices are because because they're cheaper but not because they create serendipity or synergy most of these are just hocus pocus ideas that are not re- very realistic so yes yeah, sure actually sometimes i say well well when people are done with a task let them go home or let them play the guitar uh, or, or or you know do or read a book you know how many organizations let their employees read a book and they say oh, we are a knowledge company okay but how many books do you re- your employees actually ever read.
0: It's almost like indebtedness. Like you owe us your time yeah. for your salary. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Which is
0: completely fucked up.
1: It is because you don't owe your 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 employees time. You own their project product. What they produce yeah. is what you own as a company. Yeah. You don't own their time. That's a misunderstanding. one of the things that again was experienced during the pandemic was people said well now I can actually sit down and look out look out the window for two hours and you know gather my thoughts if you don't do that if you do that in a company you will look like you're idle you'll look like you're doing nothing right so that's why the the, the pseudo work is as I said an imitation of work because we 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 for some weird reason accept people who are going into meetings, writing reports, tapping on their keyboards. That sounds like work. It mm. looks like work. But we were trying to say, yes, but it isn't work. It might be more work actually looking out the window, thinking about a problem. But because we don't
0: recognize this as work, we will never get to do that. So if we want to break the chains here of bondage yeah. to this idea, w- isn't the best um, way to do it more top-down than bottom-up? In trying to convince the individual worker to be more assertive and know their value or where they're not creating value, rather to train leaders to evaluate not based on quantity but quality of value creation?
1: The, the, yeah, because we, you know we have been we've we've a crazy idea that, that we can measure everything and we create more and more measurement systems and get an idea that we actually yeah. know something about value from these measurement mm-hmm. systems and we really don't. What I'm trying to do in in, in this book is to develop a a, um, a conversation model for m- employees and managers to be able to sit down and talk about that to get an idea of what are people actually doing. The problem with man- much modern managerialism is basically. And, and, and I'm sorry, but I need to blame the Americans for this because, you know, American managerialism has done we, a we lot bad <laughs> things in the world. The whole idea that basically you're a manager and you have the same set of, of tools that you use and you can manage the same thing everywhere you come. That is a misunderstanding uh, that you don't really need to know anything about the the work that people do, because as long as you've got your compliance and your rules and your KPIs and blah, 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 and your processes, then you can create value. And a lot of the misunderstandings and um, low quality of, of productivity we have today is because we don't know what's going on. And again, how do you know when your employees are creating value? How do you know if they're actually finding their work meaningful if you never talk to them? If you only know about what they're doing through mm-hmm. spreadsheets and PowerPoint presentations, then you have no idea. So I really wanted to bring the, the manager back on the floor and look the people into, into the eyes of the people that they lead um, because then they will find out which of their work is really value-creating
2: and which is not. Mm. Right this moment, um, all across Denmark and all across the world, people are returning to work after COVID. Yeah. And I know a lot of companies are struggling to figure out how that's going to look. Some have implemented 10% rules, 30% rules, flex desks. What's going to happen, and what, what's your take on what's going to happen? One, one thing I'm, I'm scared of
1: is that we're going to see the same thing that happens every time we have a problem, which I also spend time on in my new book, that we have a tendency to every time we find a problem or deviation, we invent a system, or we invent a process or a set of rules. And again, I think we're. I'm, I'm a bit anxious that right now we're going to see the same thing again. We said the corporate rule that say you can spend so much time on have a home office two two days a week, and you should this and you should that, instead of again t- sitting down talking to the individual and say, well, you allowed this and you allowed this, and this is sort of the you know the framework we have. But but we have to figure out me and you what works for you, what would be best for you. Some people might you know. They, you should think that they, work, they would be working better from home, but they, are, they can't do it. They can't discipline themselves, and they, they miss their colleagues or whatever. So why should they, again, be the victim of some stupid corporate policy that says, you have to do this and this and this? What I'm trying to challenge in my book is that, that we stop inventing systems every time we have a problem, but basically just look at the individuals which are around us. And that requires a lot of trust. It requires a whole but lot of trust. Between and the company and, and the employee, yeah. the manager and the employee. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and it requires that management goes back to what was originally their role, was to help an employee create value by removing obstacles in their way and m- making an environment where it was easy for them to thrive instead of controlling them, instead of treating them like kids. Which we are basically doing in more modern corporations, and not trusting them, and and outsourcing that and mistrust into systems and rules, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Interestingly enough, that was another thing we saw in the COVID-19. Uh, the research I read, at least here from Denmark, that actually a lot of managers felt they came closer to their employees, and that might seem like a paradox since they were, you know, virtually handling them. But they said it was much more concrete what I was what I was asked to do. I was helping them solve task. Finding out what to do this. And so what's much more a hands-on job to be manager. It was what it was basically all about. And it was not a ton of meetings and, and talking about milestones and KPIs and performance reviews and blah, blah, blah. It was basically doing what this job is supposed to be.
0: Mm. Well, I think on uh, on that note, we will uh, take a quick break, and then we'll come back with our last segment where I want to look at some particularities about the Danish culture that could either support or hinder your your vision here, as well as maybe some uh, new books or lessons for Denmark and the world. All right, we're back with uh, today's guest, Dennis Nurmark. Dennis, before we hit the break, I said I wanted to hear about some particularities with the Danish culture mm. that could either support or hinder this vision of a society without meaningless work? Could you say a word <coughs> about that?
1: Yeah, sure. Because it's it's a question I've been asked a lot. Also, because I you know I still spend a lot of time on on helping organisations work a, across cultures and make Danes understand people who are not Danish and the other other way around. And and um, there is actually a lot of strengths in Danish culture that prevents them from having too much pseudo work. And I would actually say that Denmark is probably the, the least amount of pseudo work, you know, compared with a lot of other cultures, because because of a few things. First of all, the level of trust is very high in this society, so that means you are not necessarily sticking to so many rules and processes and systems, because you have, you believe that people are basically capable of doing a lot of stuff on their own without a lot of control mechanisms. Sadly, though, we have been you could say, inspired by a lot of corporate thinking and management thinking from UK and US and other places that makes it think that we we need to control and, and, and make more processes and more KPIs as a professional, professional management, you could say. Uh, but, you know, classic management in Denmark isn't that, you know... Um, concerned with measurable performance etc cetera, etc cetera, but much more on trusting that they have hired the right individuals to do the job mm. um but that is that has been changing especially in the public sector and the private sector over the years so I'm, I'm really always trying to be an advocate for the idea of getting back to you know classic more danish way of looking at at um, you know relationship between employees and and uh, their managers another thing is is our low degree of power distance in the Danish society which makes it I talked to before about the people who, can, who are the complainers of the organization, people who can, who can talk back. and of course in, an, in, an, in a country with lower power distance, they are feel more free to do this. They feel that they can challenge their manager and they can say this is this is bullshit, I don't want to do this and, and actually get away with it um, because Danish managers expect people to say if they do not agree. And that helps tremendously if you want to get rid of of this. Also, Denmark is people don't bullshit so much as they do in many other cultures, and and bullshit is basically a way of of avoiding the truth, about talking things in an honest and direct way, but sugarcoating stuff. And you know, there's a reason why David Graeber called the same phenomena bullshit jobs, because it basically is. You know, it it's, it's stuff that sounds impressive but isn't. And again, the more you live in a bullshitting world, the more it it needs to sound good but really isn't anything, the more you will let pseudo work in. So I think the very sometimes b- pretty direct way of approaching stuff in Denmark is another part of the immune defense system against pseudo work mm-hmm. here.
0: I think that's really uh, interesting. <laughs> um, and I think that that call to get back to the core of what, Danish leadership, uh, that trust-based leadership is about. Maybe the pandemic can reawaken that and move away from the American and British import that's mm. created more of a pseudo arbana.
2: Yeah, it seems like you know this. Uh, what you're saying to to some degree is that management consulting, professional management consulting, most of which is from the Anglo-Saxon world, mm. right? Yeah, uh, has has created this. Do you see any trends? Changing if you look at uh, the big consulting firms that go in and get millions and millions to come in and change things, uh, are they mm. recognizing that? Yeah,
1: I think, so, I think so. They are talking about more about meaningfulness and, and people shouldn't be stressed out. And uh, you know, it's so interesting every time I talk to a consultancy firm in Denmark, they all insist that we're different from the rest, right? You know, we're the good ones, or etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think, I think there is, um Nobody wants to be McKinsey, apart from McKinsey, right? You know, they, 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 that you want to keep everything lean and etc. The, the whole idea of just higher, higher productivity gains. Um, you also have a younger generation who don't buy in on this, who don't want to do that, who really, who feel that they want to have more time for themselves and, and find meaningfulness in what that they what they do. So I, I. If you want, to, it's, it's part of basically employer branding today that you want to have individuals who maybe have it, the, the people you want to have who are creative and innovative and interesting to be around. You know, they 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 don't want to live in organizations with too much pseudo work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's about to change and it needs to change. And I think also consultancy, yeah, have have realized that they can't do it the old way anymore. They mm-hmm. have to really consider why are people getting sick from their work? Could it be because of the things we've been preaching about work and efficiency for the last 50 mm. years or more?
2: Who's doing it right? Do you have two or three examples? They don't necessarily have to be here here in Denmark, but are there companies around, organizations around that are really, that have really gotten rid of pseudo-work or have really managed to create meaningful
1: I can't mention any names because of my, 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 the clients I have and I work with. But one thing I think is very interesting, I've been working with a lot currently, are organizations that are expanding a lot, getting bigger and bigger and growing and getting international, who do not want to become like the big corporate organizations, who want to sort of keep a startup mindset a little bit more, that they want to say, how can we avoid believing that we need all of these systems and all of these things and all of this bureaucracy. How can we basically be who we are and and be and, and have this? Do you know the core value of being uh, agile in the original sense of the word, and daring and and, and you know, taking risks and, and 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 having meaningful work and be a fun place to work. Um, why you know sort of so sort, of sort of to combat the idea that pseudo work and corporate bureaucracy comes as a sort of a natural law when you expand become bigger no, there's no natural law here we we as human beings have, have a have an, you know we we're individuals we uh, have have the capability of saying no and combat it and and be and reflect on it so right now i'm 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 seeing a few organizations ha that, that work really with keeping that. That mindset from being a startup, when they are growing and avoiding work. and that's mm. you know, that's a fascinating work.
0: Mm. Dennis, um, over the last couple of years since we last spoke, are there any uh, books that have really caught your interest that you would recommend for our audience? That are
1: yeah, there's uh, Humanocracy by Gary Hamel, and I think uh, the other guy is called Sanini—that's his surname, uh, Sanini—and Hamel, Humanocracy. I I just. It came out just after I finished working on my new book. Uh, and that, that basically also looks at exactly what I was talking about before, how, how the idea that just because you're a big, mature organization, you need all of this crap is basically not true. And they have some really good cases about organizations who don't do it this way, who don't centralize everything, who actually give people the freedom to take choice and make own decisions, to avoid the managerial uh, nightmare um, and and uh, that, that was a great book to read because it, it gave a lot of these case stories. Uh, humanocracy,
0: Humanocracy. We should have brought that into our managing people. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: It's good so It's actually it's an, and, and for Danish listeners, it's out in Danish as well. Um, so th- that was a an, an, an really inspiring book to, to, to read. Um, right now I'm looking more, more personally I'm looking a lot into innovation at the uh, currently you know, about how, why we're we so bad at taking risks and why we're not risk takers anymore. And uh, I just read Matt Ridley's How Innovation Work, which is a great book about basically what it what it takes to be innovative. And his, his, his uh, agenda is also, again, that bureaucracy, not taking real risks, constantly spending more time on compliance than on research and development because we're so anxious and so, um, you know, just want to, to move on in a secure way. We're not really producing the stuff we could produce. you know we have become complacent and uh, we talk more about not being scared and, and could a vaccine kill us or might I read a book where I get insulted by reading it right? We were so protective of everybody yeah. and this constant protectionism and this anti-risk mm-hmm. culture, it's got to kill us at some point because that means that more risk-taking cultures will simply take over, Mm. like China and other places, which also dealt with some of these, you know, this virus a little bit better than we did. So maybe actually our complex systems, bureaucracy and risk-averseness could be the end of, you know, the Western dominance if we're not um, being careful. If you want Western
0: dominance, dominance, somebody won't won't (laughs) like that. Drop the mic. (laughs) Well, I want to uh, mindful of the time and I want to wrap up today with uh, one final question. Um, do you have any new lessons to or from Denmark here in light of your new work or some thoughts you have? What's something that Denmark can teach the world here in 2021 and what could we, what could we be doing better?
1: What could Denmark be teaching the world? Um, well, I, I, I think some of the things I've already talked about, you know, the uh, the uh, immense amount of, of, of trust we have in people. I think it's a, it's it's a thing we could actually export and um, and tell people more about. And for everybody who works here and lives here, like you do, it's obvious. You see it everywhere. Um, to, and and tell more about, you know, that that to get more trust, you need to show trust. You need because it's it, it spirals this way. So. Um, when people come to Denmark and when you expose this and you say, "Well, we don't need control mechanisms for this and this and this," and this, this is very open, and very free, then it inspires a lot of people that things could be different. That they could actually live in a world where where there is not uh, so much time spent on, on controlling what everybody I think it's still one of our biggest assets, and I'm so, you know, I'm, I'm really, you know, anxious every time we get very inspired by principles and management ideas from somewhere
0: else because we actually have a lot of it. Dennis Normark, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, come by today and uh, I, I don't see this podcast as pseudo work but I see it as some sort of value what about you Brian? oh it's definitely there's so much value this podcast, podcast. So keep listening uh, before we go any um, anywhere audience can find you find your recent works uh,
1: well it should be available in all the you know books, bookstores and bookshelves you can visit my my, my webpage at uh, dennisnormark.com uh, I think. Yeah, it was com. I just got that because acquired that <laughs> because now the book is out in Congrats. English. So I probably, probably should. Yeah, and then you can read more about what I do. I'm not on Facebook or anything like that because I don't particularly like that place, but I'm on LinkedIn.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Dennis. Do let's we continue? Let's You're get welcome. back to work. Let's get back to work. Are you getting the most out of your time in Denmark? Pick up the printed copy of the English-language newspaper Copenhagen Post today to access relevant news and event information guaranteed to enhance your working and family life.